This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, we'll have election analysis and commentary from Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect. We'll also speak with Erwin Chemerinsky, dean of the law school at UC Berkeley. He'll talk about Trump and his attorney generals. But first, Jeff Sessions. He was our attorney general for 22 months. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, Trump fired Jeff Sessions yesterday, a day after the election in which Democrats took control of the House. Trump appointed as acting attorney general a political hack named Matt Whitaker. For comment, we turn to Ahilan Arulanatham. He's senior counsel of the ACLU of Southern California, where he focuses on the rights of immigrants and refugees. He's won several important decisions at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, Before coming to the ACLU, he worked as a federal public defender in El Paso. He's also the recipient of a MacArthur Foundation Fellowship. Ahilan, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, Jeff Sessions is no longer our attorney general. Were any of the cases you argued in court uh, against him and his uh, Justice Department? Uh, Yes, several of them were. Probably the one which I think sheds the most light on how Jeff Sessions was operating was our lawsuit against the administration's attempt to terminate the Temporary Protected Status Program, which tried to take away the immigration, lawful immigration status of about 400,000 people here who had lived here, in some cases for around 20 years, from Sudan, El Salvador, Nicaragua, and Haiti. But other cases also we were doing involving immigration, what they call immigration detention, just like the immigration prisons, or cases on behalf of children facing deportation, child refugees from Central America, a number of those were against Jeff Sessions and his Justice Department. Well, let's talk in a little more detail about what the Jeff Sessions Justice Department argument was on temporary protected status. Remind us about the issues in that case and, and what hap- what's happened with it. That case, I think, is a good window to understand a lot about how Jeff Sessions was operating because we managed to obtain a lot of documents about how the decision to end the TPS program for these countries went into effect. Uh, and yeah, just to, to remind your uh, listeners, the Temporary Protected Status Program is based on a law that was passed in 1990 um, that uh, authorized the government to provide temporary humanitarian relief to people from countries that had been afflicted by natural disaster, civil war, or other major crises. And it allowed the government to grant work authorization and then stays here um, about up to 18 months at a time for people from those countries. And although there's many TPS programs that end quickly, there are certain ones uh, from countries that have lasted for a very long period of time, as much as 20 years. And the, the four of them I mentioned, and Honduras is another one, are all examples of ones where there's been TPS for a number of years because there have been problems in those countries for a number of years. Uh, El Salvador, obviously, as you can see from the refugee situation, continues to be a very unstable uh, country, and the same is true of Haiti and um, Sudan and some of these other countries. So the the Sessions uh, Justice Department, and actually also people who had worked for Jeff Sessions when he was a senator, and he was an extremely 
anti-immigrant senator. He pushed draconian anti-immigrant legislation in his entire time in the Senate, right from the start. Um, people who worked for him then went to the Trump transition immigration policy team mm-hmm. and actually wrote policy papers recommending a number of draconian uh, policies that the Trump administration has adopted, including ending TPS for all of these countries that I mentioned. And then after the um, the president won the election, took positions both in, in the Department of Justice, working with their former boss, Jeff Sessions, who is their, still their boss now as the attorney general, and also in the Department of Homeland Security, um, and actually also in the State Department as well. So a number of people who had worked for Jeff Sessions uh, sort of transitioned out to different uh, different uh, parts of the, the government bureaucracy. And in these different positions, they uh, undertook a lot of steps to really attack the pre-existing career officials who had done the temporary protective status decision-making since 1990, in some cases, people have been there a long time, and really changed their decisions and undermined their processes to alter the decision-making so that countries that really qualified for continuing TPS, uh, you know, the, the agencies changed their decisions at the hands of these political um, appointees and, and changed them determinations. And I think that's a good sort of window into other things that we've seen changing the way immigration appellate car, uh, uh, courts work, uh, changing the asylum rules, the substantive rules governing asylum. I mean, so many different changes that attorney general sessions and people working with him uh, put into effect just in a very short time, and, and as you said, in 22 months. Well, asylum has been a uh, bedrock of American uh, law since since after World War II. Remind us about the origins of the right to asylum, and then what happened to it with Jeff Sessions as Attorney General. Sure, I mean, as you as you say, the asylum protection actually goes back to the Refugee Convention, uh, which comes from right after I think it's 1949. It's right after World War II. The U.S. was instrumental in creating that uh, treaty and I think did so in large part out of the really bitter experience of World War II. Um, in particular, the U.S. sent Jews who had fled Nazi Germany and who had come to the U.S. in a boat, the famous boat called the St. Louis, um, in another context, to decline to let those people stay in the U.S. And many of them then were forced to return to Europe and were killed in the Holocaust. And I think after World War II, there was a real recognition that, that those were really horrific mistakes. And the idea that we would create protections for people around, for, first in Europe and then later around the world, who had fled persecution, uh, really came out of that. And so the, the asylum statute is just a modern-day um, kind of manifestation of that treaty, the, the treaty from the Refugee Convention itself. And uh, I think it's fair to say that if there's a single hallmark to the 22 months of Jeff Sessions' tenure as the attorney general, you have to say it was just an all-out assault on the asylum process from uh, very restrictive Board of Immigration Appeals, or or, excuse me, decisions from the attorney general reversing the immigration courts, because the attorney general is the overseer of the immigration courts. He issued a number of decisions limiting the um, the substantive scope of the asylum laws, making it harder, for example, for people fleeing Central America 
and the violence there caused by um, the transnational gangs and uh, other forms of violence taking place there, making it very hard for those people to apply for asylum. And in addition, he also instituted a number of procedural changes, making it harder for immigration judges to give people time to find lawyers to present their asylum cases, because unfortunately there's no right to an appointed lawyer in an immigration uh, court proceeding. So people are really dependent on legal services organizations to find lawyers, and he made it harder for judges to give people time to do that. Uh, and, and in some brutal ways, like set benchmarks, you have to complete a certain number of cases a year. If you don't, you'll have negative performance ratings, you know, really brutal uh, policies designed to speed up cases and make it harder for people, for judges to give uh, immigrants a fair hearing. And these are, I think, some of the most important things that Sessions did. You've said the the central theme of his term as attorney general is the attacks on asylum. Another theme is his lack of action to defend voting rights, very much on our minds since the midterm election just ended. Did he file a single voting rights action? I don't know of any. My understanding is that there's not a single one. And I should say, I'm, I'm, I think it is a hallmark. I think it's fair to say that asylum, uh, the attack on asylum is a hallmark, particularly given the family separation policy, right? Yes. That, that was certainly in, in part, had this many fingerprints on it, but in part was the attorney general's or the, the Justice Department's move as well. Um, but, but it's true. His, his record was really fairly retrograde in a bunch of areas, <laughs> not just in, uh, not just in asylum. As you said, not, not a single uh, voting rights case. He really tried to retrench and undo a lot of the really great work on over-incarceration uh, and, and the policies that uh, Eric Holder and then Loretta Lynch uh, under President Obama had tried to put in place to decrease excessive sentences, particularly in drug cases. Um, uh, Jeff Sessions was trying very hard, sending as many signals as he could that the federal government wanted to prosecute people for marijuana. Um, even as state after state, two more states in this last election, uh, took steps towards legalizing either medical marijuana or um, recreational marijuana. Jeff Sessions staunchly opposed that and thought we should be prosecuting marijuana offenses to the hilt. Um, so yes, he, he, he was he was really, um, uh, uh, I think, a, a, you, I don't know, I'm struggling to find the words. He was draconian, uh, he was very anti-immigrant. Uh, he really was sort of almost like lost in a different decade when it came to sentencing policy, sort of totally immune to the lessons of the failures of the war on drugs and the failures that resulted in mass incarceration in the 80s and 90s. He really was was just completely retrograde on all those issues. There's one other area we haven't talked about here uh, that was in the news just today, uh, DACA, the attempt to end DACA, the uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled just today that Trump and the Jeff Sessions Justice Department cannot end DACA on their own. This is a lawsuit brought not directly by the ACLU, but by Janet Napolitano on behalf of the University of California and by state attorney generals from California, Minnesota, lots of other places. So where do we stand on DACA at this hour? 
Yes, you know, it's it's a sign of the the parade of horribles that was the Jeff Sessions <laughs> Justice Department that we could go however long we've gone, ten or twelve minutes, and not mention DACA, <laughs> yes. uh, talk about nothing other than terrible things that Jeff Sessions <clears throat> um, did as the Attorney General. Yeah, so uh, it's a really interesting one because uh, it seems that President Trump has never wanted to own entirely for himself uh, the decision to end the DACA program which is, I'm sure your most of your listeners know, is a program that provided uh, work authorization and a reprieve from deportation for people who were brought here by their parents as children and uh, do not have immigration status. Um, and instead, Jeff Sessions is the one who uh, announced the termination of uh, the DACA program. And when he did it, what he wrote was that they were terminating the DACA program because they believed it was unlawful. Ugh. They believed that the president did not have, President Obama did not have legal authority to create the program. Uh, and you know, they, they could have written a decision which said, we don't think it's right for people brought here as children by their parents to be allowed to live here. You know, tough on them. Who cares if they have won the Pulitzer Prize or you know, brilliant students or whatever have you, we think they have to be deported. I think if they had done some version of that, um, it would have been very much more difficult for uh, people to bring legal challenges to it. But that's not what they wrote. What they wrote was uh, something saying, oh, we we can't allow the DACA program to continue because it's, it's illegal. And we think that states like Texas will sue us over it. And when they do, we'll have to defend it and, and uh court and we won't be able to do that, essentially. And by doing it that way and basing it on a claim that the program was unlawful, they allowed people to challenge their decision on the ground that it's that the, its basis was wrong. In other words, if, if, you, if an agency says, oh, because something's illegal, we have to stop it, well, the courts, which have the final word on what the law is in our system of government, then they get to make a decision about whether the agency's view of the law was correct. And that's what has happened in these cases. Then um, a number of cases were filed in different parts of the country challenging the decision on the ground that the agency was wrong, Jeff Sessions was wrong to say that the DACA program was unlawful. And they did make some other arguments, but that was the primary one. That's the one that, that succeeded. And so first in the district court and now in the Ninth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit said, yes, the agency has said that uh, it ended DACA because it believed DACA was illegal. That's what Jeff Sessions said. We then can review that, and we are reviewing, was the DACA program, in fact, illegal? No, it was lawful. It's a permissible exercise of the president's authority, and therefore we rescind the decision terminating the DACA program. Uh, Ahilan Arulanatham is senior counsel of the ACLU in Southern California. Ahilan, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks for having me, John. Always a pleasure. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, election analysis and commentary from Harold Meyerson. That's in a minute on KPFK when our program continues.
It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, Erwin Chemerinsky on Trump's new acting attorney general, a political hack named Matt Whitaker. But first, on Tuesday, Americans voted and Democrats won control of the House while Republicans gained at least two seats in the Senate, maybe more. For commentary, we turn, of course, to Harold Meyerson. He's executive editor of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, let's start with the big picture of Tuesday's uh, election. What is the big picture? Well, uh, the big picture is how the Democrats took back the House and how the Republicans increased their margin in the Senate, although both Both of those are givens. We don't exactly have final numerical totals on either of those, though, because there are more ballots still to count. Um, The Democrats did uh, very well in uh, the places where they normally do very well, urban areas, but they also picked up um, uh, a higher percentage of college-educated white, uh, particularly white women, uh, and this enabled them to win a slew of suburban districts that had historically been Republican, uh, disproportionately higher income uh, and higher percentage of more college-educated uh, voters. So this is kind of a categorical expansion of the Democratic electorate to uh, a, a new group, uh, a, 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 which was augmented by unusually high voter turnout for a midterm election within the Democratic base of young voters and minority voters. Uh, The Republicans did not have a categorical expansion. They didn't add a constituency. But as they did in 2016, they did a really good job of uh, getting turnout out of uh, the Republican base disproportionately, uh, disproportionately, heavily and increasingly all white, and uh, more rural. I noted in a piece I wrote at The Prospect that this uh, followed a pattern in the recently completed elections in Poland <laughs> where the, uh, oh. the, the Trump equivalent party, the national government, the xenophobic autocratic oh. uh, law and justice party, oh. lost uh, 103 of the 107 mayoral elections up for grabs but won a bunch of provincial uh, legislatures where rural voters outvoted urban voters. So uh, th- this is kind of a pattern across the whole, what we used to call the West. Yes. Shifting back from <laughs> Poland to, right, to right, America, right. They, the New York Times had a fascinating graphic uh, about the blue shift where they studied all congressional districts to see how how the vote changed in comparison to two years ago. They found that 312 Congressional districts swung to the left, even though only 29 or 30 or maybe as many as 35 flipped from red to blue. The, the, the red to blue flipping is not the whole story. That was just the, I guess we could call it the crest of, of a wave. The New York Times says the average district nationwide moved 10 percentage points to the left this year. That's pretty darn impressive. It's pretty darn impressive, but then gerrymandering is a great defense against that, though. North Carolina has 12 congressional districts, and if you add up the votes from Tuesday in all of those districts, there were 100,000 more votes for Democratic candidates than Republican candidates, but 
nonetheless, uh, Republicans uh, didn't lose any uh, congressional races and still control nine out of those 12 districts. So, uh, yes, that is a good uh, uh, development that the Times reported on. Uh, but uh, given things like gerrymandering or the primordial gerrymander we have, which is the United States Senate, yeah. Uh, we're going to have to go a ways beyond that uh, to uh, to get Democratic majorities. Although, if you look ahead to the presidential election of 2020, it's pretty clear that most of the Midwestern states that defected to Trump in 2016 can be brought back into uh, the Democratic column. Yeah, let's point. Let's name a few names here: Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. The shocking fact that Trump carried all of them in 2016. All of those on Tuesday elected Democratic governors and Democratic senators. That was that was a major event, I would say. They, they did indeed, and I would add Iowa, which n- yeah. narrowly reelected a Republican governor but uh, saw three of its four congressional districts go to Democrats. I would add Iowa to the list of of states that uh, the Democrats can probably, with the right uh, nominee, do uh, carry in in 2016. Ohio is looking pretty bleak, except for the Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown, who was uh, a progressive who nonetheless manages to get uh, reelected in Ohio, as he did on Tuesday. On the other hand, the famous other hand, we had yes. three heartbreakers for our three most exciting candidates. Beto lost the Senate race in Texas. In the Florida governor's race, that's going to a recount, but we thought Andrew Gillum was going to be able to win it easily. In the governor's race in Georgia, Stacey Abrams was never ahead. She's right now fighting for a recount. But the fact that we did not win outright in in Beto's race, in Andrew Gillum's and Stacey Abrams, I would call those heartbreakers. Oh, they are heartbreakers. Those would have been breakthrough races. Those would have been signals that, you know, the legacy of the South finally uh, has has given up an inch uh, uh, or more than, uh, but uh, uh, not quite. Now, the the one uh, possible consoling fact about Florida, even if uh, uh, Nelson and Gillum do not prevail, uh, is is that the state also voted heavily uh, to end uh, uh, restricting, uh, keeping ex-felons from voting in the state. Florida has 1.4 million ex-felons, and since uh, a very large number of them were uh, convicted for breathing while black, uh, you know they, they will. We can we can assume that the, the the voter pool in Florida may shift in a more democratic direction. Of course, if uh, Ron DeSantis, the Trumpite, who uh, uh, was the Republican nominee for governor, if he's if he in fact is the governor. He will do his damnedest to stop that from happening, as as all Florida Republicans have tried to suppress voting uh, since time immemorial. Although originally they were Dixiecrat Democrats, so, but but still, that is uh, uh, an avenue for possible hope in uh, in Florida. Indeed, the biggest voting rights victory of the year: Florida voters yep. restored voting rights to more than a million ex felons. That ought to change politics in Florida quite a bit. I mean, Andrew Gillum right now is something like. 40,000 votes behind out of 8 million. If 1 million ex-felons vote, some of those might even vote Democratic. Some of them might. 
that is a basis for hope. I mean, Florida is an unusual state because, like like many states, it's getting more racially diverse, which moves it more towards the Democrats. But Florida and Arizona are the two states to which older whites, you know, move move into the state to escape winter, and they push the state to the right. So it's kind of a demographic race in 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 Florida and in Arizona, which is very much a purple state, and where. The uh, Senate race is uh, the votes are still being counted, and the outcome is is still not entirely clear. Democrats could pick up Arizona as well as Nevada, which they have picked up. Kirsten Cinema may become the Democratic senator from Arizona uh, when the votes are are counted, or, or uh, when the vote count is completed. Now we get to talk about the Southern California House races. Katie Hill beat Steve Knight in northern L.A. County, so now there are no Republicans in Congress representing any part of Los Angeles County starting in January. Uh, Mike Levin won the seat in southern Orange County, once held by Daryl Issa. Harley Ruda apparently has won the seat held by Dana Rohrbacher, Putin's favorite congressman, still undecided. I want to emphasize this undecided because some some people are saying Mimi Walters defeated Katie Porter and Irvine. That is not true, at least not yet. Also, young Kim has not defeated Gil Cisneros in Fullerton. Uh, do you want to explain how long it takes to count ballots in California and why well, it takes... Well, let, let, let's put it this way. Uh, uh, the, the state doesn't have to declare a winner in these races until December 7th. Uh, and for the Republicans, that may be the reenact Pearl Harbor Day, uh, <laughs> it, because it's quite possible that, uh, uh, you know, the, these, these races will move towards the Democrats. Why do we say that? Also, I should add, there's a real, I think, probability that what's his name denim up in this in the yes Denmark jeff Valley. denim jeff denim will lose to josh harder uh even though he had an, uh, a lead on election night for for the reasons i'm about to explain about 40 percent of the votes in california come in uh by mail uh the state encourages that uh and uh so long as you postmark it by election day and it uh arrives by uh tomorrow by the end of business on friday uh, the vote is counted, uh, as well as provisional ballots, which require special counting, and these ballots require all checking of signatures. And so it's been the case in California ever since this has been the law, pretty much for the last decade, that uh, the vote counts, uh, you know, the, the election day vote counts aren't very good indices of where the final vote counts going to be. The late votes disproportionately tend to be Democratic. Um, Can you and, explain uh, why? Why is it that Republicans send in their mail ballots early and Democrats wait till the last day? We we probably need a social psychologist <laughs> to explain that. But but I, I think part you know part of it is re, Republicans have a lot of um, uh, white retirees with nothing better to do than vote. Whereas uh, Democrats' uh, lives are full to bursting with wonderful activities and or or, or just angst. <laughs> But uh, and and you know your angst may be oh my god have I voted yet so who knows who knows what where where this this mystery originates but it but this has been a, a real pattern I mean uh, when uh, Kamala Harris was first elected Attorney General she actually trailed Steve Cooley the LADA who was a Republican nominee uh, for for weeks and uh, after the vote until she surpassed him in the last uh, in the last like ten days. Uh, moving into December, and and by the way, on the on the uh, uh, state off statewide offices, um, uh, the uh, uh, superintendent of public instruction, the charter school guy Marshall Tuck has a narrow lead over Tony Thurmond, uh, 
I don't, I'm not convinced that's going to hold. So, uh, you know, we, we will uh, we have to wait and see. But the Republicans know, uh, and, I mean, the, the Republican pros know that the Election Day uh, numbers uh, may have a, 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 a dim relation at best to the final numbers in California. Yeah, the, the L.A. Times uh, uh, reported this morning that the late mail ballots, uh, late meaning late in the late in the game that come in from Democrats yeah. are likely to add two percent to the Democratic vote total. This is known by all the professionals. This is quote dependable as the tides a voting expert said. And that's why Katie Porter still has a chance of beating Mimi Walters and why Gil Cisnero still has a good chance of beating young young Kim in Fullerton and why Josh Harder Josh, uh, yeah, Josh Harder yeah. has a good chance uh, of winning. Uh, if you've just tuned which, in, which would bring, which would mean that the Democrats' uh, total gain in the House could be as high as thirty-seven. I think. Uh, wow. If I'm, if I'm counting wow. right. Well, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sarah Huckabee Sanders. The House results in Minnesota were were pretty darn interesting. Democrats flipped two seats in the suburbs of the Twin Cities, electing. Angie Craig and Dean Phillips. Dean Phillips is dear Abby's grandson. Uh, and, but in Minnesota was the only place where uh, blue districts flipped to red. Two rural districts, one in southern Minnesota farm country, uh, the other one up, up north on the Iron Range that had been held by Democrats were taken by Republicans. Um, this is just a sort of an extreme case, Harold, of what you were talking about at the beginning, that the Democrats are increasingly controlling all of the cities and suburbs and the Republicans are out there in the, in the, in the woods. Your state that, that, that <laughs> kind of decided to illustrate this more graphically than any other by flipping some districts, uh, not just uh, red to blue, but blue to red. But it, it's... Uh, it's the case, and you know, I'm not. I I don't claim to be a Minnesota expert. I I think some of this in the farm districts could be related to uh, I don't know Lutheranism, Lutheranism descending into evangelicalism. Uh, certainly, in the Northern Iron Range, uh, there's less work than there there used to be. Uh, and they're Trumpish up there. They they they've also been yeah. told Trump campaigned in Duluth. Duluth, by the way, is a Bernie town, but the the smaller Iron Range towns to the west of Duluth were had been convinced by Trump that the uh, the steel and iron tariffs on on China. China are going to reopen the iron mines of northern Minnesota. Seems sort of unlikely, but that has made them uh, uh, Trumpish. Uh, I also think well, that although the... that argument did not hold sway in western Pennsylvania, which is huh. uh, from some of this. I mean, they they, they elected Connor M instead of a Republican. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> so this is hit and miss. But Trump is also this this was clear in 2016. Trump's schedulers have been brilliant and putting him in sort of non-metropolitan regions for yeah. his events yeah. and, and really getting the vote ginned up there. Uh, can we talk for a minute about the Georgia 6th? Stick with us here, listeners. This sure. is suburban Atlanta. This is the one where liberals spent millions of dollars in a failed attempt uh, in a special election a year ago for John Ossoff, a name that has yeah. been forgotten. In that same district, where liberals spent millions of dollars and failed to elect John Ossoff, an African-American anti-gun activist named Lucy McBath won, even though it's a white majority district. Harold Meyerson, what is the lesson of the Georgia 6th? 
Well, the lesson of the Georgia Six is if you can put together a minority vote with uh, college-educated whites who have had it with Trump, um, you know, you you may well win. Uh, and particularly in terms of uh, uh, both those groups turning against gun violence, because Lucy McBath not only ran on that platform, but had a son who was uh, uh, killed uh, yeah. by gun violence. And uh, uh, that uh, that proved to be a pretty potent uh, argument on uh, on her behalf and on the Democrats' behalf. And by the way, uh, you know, it's you get a similar, somewhat similar demographic composition of affluent whites and increasing minorities, not so much African American as Latino and Asian, in those Orange County districts. Uh, you know, that that may not be uh, a very safe terrain for Republicans going forward, and it isn't a safe terrain for them as votes continue to be counted in Orange County. I also want to talk with you about the Democrats' Southern problem. It continues. They tried in Tennessee. The Democrats tried tried the old way. A well liked white guy, Phil Bressenden. This is sort of the Bill Clinton path, the Jimmy Carter path. Democrats did not succeed in Tennessee with a well liked white guy. They tried dynamic young black leaders in Georgia and Florida. Both of those are currently undecided right now, but that. Didn't seem to be a clear winning strategy, at least not right now. What are the Democrats going to do about the South? Well, I looked at the exit polls uh, uh, the last time Democratic moderates uh, ran statewide in analogous races in Georgia and Florida. Michelle Nunn running for the running in Georgia, daughter of Sam Nunn, and uh, what. I'm forgetting the the, the guy ran uh, ran four years ago against Rick Scott for governor, and it turns out that Gillum uh, in Florida and Stacey Abrams in Georgia did uh, percentage wise did uh, even a little better with white voters than their more moderate predecessors. The thing is, uh, in this is Donald Trump's uh, South to the extent that he turns out more of those white voters, and so. Uh, even though the uh, the percentage uh, is uh, is is just as good for progressives, the the number of white voters uh, uh, surged. Uh, so it's going to be tricky. But you know the demographic change is is going to flip the South at some point. Uh, how much of the nation will be left standing before mm. that happens mm. is a damn good question. But uh, uh, you know I'm I'm I am. Long-term uh, upbeat about places like uh, Georgia and uh, Florida and Arizona and ultimately Texas, but this will take a while. Uh, and Republicans, to maintain their hold, are going to have to even up their voter suppression game. And let's talk about women. A hundred women are going to the House. This is sort of the 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 culmination of the Women's March the day after Trump. Trump took office uh, for two years, almost two years, women organized, and yesterday they succeeded. And there's some remarkable women going to Congress. Let me just name a few of them. In Massachusetts, Ayanna Presley becomes the first woman of color ever to represent Massachusetts in Congress. Two Muslim women have been elected to Congress for the first time, Rashida Tlaib in Michigan and Ilhan Omar in Minnesota. 
the first two Native American women are going to Congress, Sharice Davids in Kansas and Deb Haland in New Mexico. Texas, on the coattails of Beto, elected the first two Latinas ever to represent uh, Congress. So a great day for women and a great day for America, if I may say so. Indeed. And uh, Rashida Tlaib, whom you mentioned, and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York, from Queens and the Bronx, can constitute uh, the Congress's Democratic Socialist Caucus. So there's all kinds of, uh, there's all kinds of firsts there. And let me just, let me just, uh, yeah. I just found my, my, the other page of my notes here. So in Texas, Beto may have lost, but a lot of people down the ballot who were Democrats got exactly. elected partly because of the mobilization. Their names, Sylvia Garcia will represent Houston. She picked cotton and hacked hay in the fields of South Texas uh, when she was growing up in El Paso, which, of course, is Beto's hometown, Veronica Escobar is going to Congress. She waited on tables and took fast food orders in her teenage uh, years. These are historic changes in Texas, and the changes aren't going to stop now. And Lucy McBath, who we just talked Lucy about, McBath. was elected in a suburb of uh, Atlanta, uh, has the same kind of debt to Stacey Abrams, uh, yes. who may not have prevailed at the top of the ticket, but brought in some, uh, you know, remarkable victories down ballot, just as Beto did in Texas. And just as uh, Gillum did in, uh, in, in, in Florida, where the Democrats flipped a couple of, uh, uh, of seats as well. For our last four or five minutes here, we need to talk about the Senate. Fun facts, Democratic Senate candidates got 45 million votes. Republicans got 33 million. That's 57 percent of the vote in the in the Senate races went to the Democrats. But, of course, as you said, the, the ultimate gerrymander, the Senate was set up not to be Democratic, specifically to be anti-Democratic, and it's certainly functioning that way now, small-D Democratic. There was that op-ed in the New York Times today by Michael Tomaski arguing that that if the Democrats are ever going to return to power in Congress, they're going to have to elect 51 senators. Uh, and that means appealing to rural America. And he thinks, you know, the Democrats have got to spend more time thinking about and developing programs specifically to address rural America. What, what do you think about that? Well, I think he's right. I mean, ultimately, even that may not do it. Um, uh, you know, we have the primordial gerrymander called the uh, the U.S. Senate, uh, uh, which is perhaps the ultimate conundrum for progressives and trying to figure out how to move uh, this country forward. Um, also, unless you control the Senate, the kind of judges, uh, yes. you know, Republicans are going to appoint. I mean, even if, even if the Republican were not Trump, uh, they'd be they'd be terrible. So, and and uh, let's just note here, Ruth Bader Ginsburg broke a couple of ribs and was hospitalized today, which makes yes. us even more worried about the future yes. of, of... Indeed. Well, your your next guest, Erwin Chemerinsky, years ago said, all, all old Democratic judges should should retire uh, when Democrats control the White House and the Senate. Uh, he was not listened to. Uh, anyway, uh, no, but the, the Senate is, is a huge problem. Uh, Michael, Michael is, an, is a friend. Is, is a usual, he's, he's right. Uh, uh, there's certainly been, you know, somewhere between disinvestment and no investment uh, by the corporate sector and not too much by the government in rural America. And... Uh, Democrats, I think, have to begin to articulate that. Um, Let me point out a couple yeah. of bright spots here. 
Mm-hmm. Utah, Nebraska, and Idaho all voted to expand Medicaid. Arkansas and Missouri voted to raise the minimum wage. I see a glimmer of hope in these in they, they, these. Well, there's a, there, 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 there's a glimmer of hope, but it may not extend past glimmerhood, uh, <laughs> which is to say, uh, those voters, uh, when you take the issues for them and abstract them out to ballot measures, they're going to vote, you know, in their economic self-interest. But they're still going to vote Republican because the way they define themselves is the more tribal and often racist way that the Republicans uh, appeal to them, that that's their primary identity. And by the way, yes, I will vote to extend Medicare and raise the minimum wage. Uh, States have been raising the minimum wage by ballot measures since the mid-90s. None of those measures have lost, and a lot of those states have been steadily Republican uh, throughout that period. so it's a glimmer of hope, but uh, it, 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 it ain't enough. You've been listening to Glimmerhood Radio here. Our guest is Harold Meyerson. You can read him at prospect.org. Harold, always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, Erwin Chemerinsky on Trump's new attorney general. That's in a minute on KPFK. When Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in LA on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. It's time to talk about Trump's former attorney general, Jeff Sessions, and his new acting attorney general appointed yesterday, a political hack named Matthew Whitaker. For comment, we turn to Erwin Chemerinsky. He's dean of the law school at UC Berkeley, an author of many books, including a brand new one, We the People, a progressive reading of the Constitution for the 21st Century. He publishes widely, including the op-ed pages of the New York Times and the L.A. Times. We reached him today in Washington, D.C. Erwin Chemerinsky, welcome back. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Well, Trump fired Jeff Sessions the day after the midterm elections when he lost the House of Representatives to the Democrats. For a year, he's complained that Jeff Sessions should have stopped the investigation of Russian involvement in his election. So this is the moment we've been worrying about. You've been sharply critical of Jeff Sessions as attorney general. How are you feeling about him today? There's so much to criticize about Jeff Sessions attorney general. But one thing he did do, he stood up for the rule of law. He disqualified himself, as he should have, from participating in the Russia investigation. He didn't cave to pressure from President Trump. He didn't fire Rod Rosenstein. He didn't eliminate the special counsel. So we've got to at least give him credit for that. Well, let's talk for a minute about his record as attorney general. We've had a lot of disagreements, and we think there were a lot of things he did that were really wrong. He did many loathsome things as attorney general. He was one of the initiators and defenders of the illegal illegal and morally bankrupt policy of separating parents and children at the border. He announced a policy that state and local governments would lose their federal funds if they didn't cooperate with federal immigration officials. That's something at least three federal district courts have declared unconstitutional. He instructed all of the United States attorneys across the country that they had to charge every crime to the maximum, including 
drug offenses. He stopped the Justice Department from enforcing a federal law that would reform police departments when there's a pattern and practice of civil rights violations. Those are all things that we should denounce. Did he bring a single voting rights case? I don't think so. Not that I know of, and he also ended other voting rights cases that have been pending a long time, challenging, for example, requirements in Texas for voter ID. Well, Trump has long said that he wants an attorney general who is loyal. Uh, Isn't that something all presidents want? After all, JFK appointed his own brother as attorney general. I think it misconceives what the role of the attorney general should be. There should be a degree of independence, the attorney general and the president, especially any time there are allegations that the president or those close to him have violated the law. It hasn't always been that way. You mentioned Robert Kennedy being John F. Kennedy's attorney general. We can talk about John Mitchell being Richard Nixon's attorney general and then going to run the campaign to reelect the president. But it should be somebody who shows some independence of the White House. Uh, My next question is a big one. Isn't firing Jeff Sessions an obstruction of justice? Hasn't Trump made it very clear that he doesn't want Jeff Sessions because Jeff Sessions is investigating his campaign and apparently uh, his family uh, finances as well? I think the hard question is if a president is exercising a power that's clearly the president's to use, when does that cross the line to obstruction of justice? The president has the right to fire any cabinet official. That's clearly held by the United States Supreme Court. Can it then be said that this is obstruction of justice? I think that's going to be a hard argument. I think there's many arguments, though, that what Trump has done already constitutes obstruction of justice. The new uh, acting attorney general... um is his appointment unconstitutional? Doesn't, the, doesn't his nomination have to be submitted to the Senate for confirmation before he can become the attorney general? There is the ability to appoint somebody in an acting position for a limited period of time when there's a vacancy. There, I think it'd be an argument that this is impermissible. But I think that the president has the ability to do this, but again, it has to be for a limited period of time. To me, what's of concern is that everything we know about Matthew Whitaker should raise real red flags. He wrote an op-ed piece a year ago saying that Mueller had gone much too far. He's been quoted as making comments saying that Mueller should be reined in. And so I really worry that he's now the person overseeing the investigation, and he's going to limit, maybe eliminate, the Mueller special counsel probe. So how much power does this Matt Whitaker have to uh, to limit or end the probe? For instance, can he block current prosecutions that are underway? Can he block new indictments? There's a rumor that Don Jr. was worried he was going to be indicted next week. Could the acting attorney general stop the special counsel from indicting the son of the president? The acting attorney general could fire Robert Mueller, and that would end all of the Mueller investigations and all of the possibility of indictments. Now, of course, United States attorneys could still try to pick this up, but they've all been appointed by Trump. The Justice Department section on public integrity could pick this up and go forward. I don't know that Whitaker is going to fire Mueller, but he could. Whitaker also could limit what Mueller can do. Just to give one example, um, in order for Mueller to issue a report, 
takes the approval of the Attorney General, whoever is overseeing Mueller. Um, that permission could be denied. So there's no limit on the ability of Whitaker to be able to restrict what Mueller and Mueller's staff do. Well, the limits are, are from the political sphere and from uh, Congress. <clears throat> How can the Mueller investigation be protected at this point? Well, Congress could pass a law that says that the special counsel can be fired only for just cause and just cause narrowly defined. After Watergate, Congress passed a statute, the Ethics in Government Act, that provided for the appointment of an independent counsel when the allegations of the president or someone at high levels of the presidential administration or close to the president broke the law. Once the independent counsel was appointed, there could be removal only for just cause. In 1988, in a case called Morrison v. Olson, the Supreme Court 7-1 to upheld the constitutionality of this law. Ironically, when Brett Kavanaugh was asked, this is before being nominated for the Supreme Court, what he thought was the case that should be most overruled by the Supreme Court, he pointed to Morrison v. Olson. But it hasn't been overruled. It does mean that Congress could pass a statute providing protection for Mueller. I'm sure the House come January, would pass in an instant, but I don't think you'll be able to get it through the Senate. Uh, I heard a conversation on CNN just in the last hour about uh, whether uh, there could be a lawsuit challenging the um, appointment of, of Whitaker as acting attorney general uh, without first nominating him and submitting the nomination to the Senate for confirmation. And the question was, who would have standing to challenge the uh, appointment? Uh, do you have any thoughts about that? Um, in order for anyone to sue in federal court, the person has to show that he or she is personally injured. Otherwise, said that they don't have standing to sue. So I understand the argument that the president can't appoint somebody is acting or interim without submitting the name to the Senate. I'm skeptical of that argument, but I'm even more skeptical of who would be able to show a personal injury to be able to bring such a suit. I'll give you an analogy. There's a provision of the Constitution that says the member of the Senate can't be appointed to an office if, while in Congress, their salary had been increased for that. The salary for that office had been increased. I don't think I explained it clearly. The Constitution says that a person who's serving in Congress can't then be appointed to an office if, while in Congress, the salary for that office was increased. Hugo Black was a senator from Alabama, and while he was in the Senate, the salary for the Supreme Court was increased. And a lawsuit was brought saying that this violated the Constitution. It seemed clearly to be impermissible. But the Supreme Court, in a case called Ex Parte Levitt, said no one has standing because no one's injured by this. I would imagine that would be analogous to this situation. Ex Parte Levitt. You heard it here first. Have you heard whether Matthew G. Whitaker is going to have his name submitted to the Senate for confirmation? None of us have heard. President Trump hasn't given an indication. And I think there's an argument under the law that the person who's serving in an acting role can't be nominated for that position. And we had this happen relatively recently that Noel Francisco was named to be the acting solicitor general, but he couldn't then have his name submitted to the Senate. So instead, 
Jeff Wall became the acting Solicitor General while waiting for the confirmation of Noel Francisco. So I would expect that Matthew Whitaker's not going to be named, and then the question is, who is? And one of the things that are being speculated now is whether Chris Christie might be named as Attorney General. Oh, man. And how long can you have an acting Attorney General who, who, uh, who hasn't been confirmed by the Senate under these circumstances? Again, there's lots of uncertainty about this, but I think there's an argument that can be for 100 days. 100 days. Uh, I have one other question for you. Uh, this is a, in your capacity as a, a teacher of constitutional law. You may have read about this, that Matt Whitaker, in a candidate Q&A when he was campaigning for the Republican nomination for senator in Iowa in 2014, uh, said that he um, viewed the federal judiciary as having too much power over public policy issues. Uh, he said, uh, there are so many bad rulings, quote, I would start with the idea of Marbury versus Madison. That's probably a good place to start with the way and with the way it's looked at the Supreme Court as the final arbiter of constitutional issues, close quote. What do you think of an acting attorney general who thinks Marbury versus Madison was a bad decision? It's really frightening. It's really frightening. Erwin Chemerinsky, his op-ed on the acting attorney general and the former attorney general appears in the L.A. Times tomorrow, Friday. Erwin, thanks so much for talking with us. It's always great to have you on the show. It's always my pleasure. And we have some news about protest demonstrations which are going to be held at 5 o'clock, mostly at 5 o'clock today, all around Southern California. This is from the Rapid Response Network. Uh, the at the loss at the federal building in Westwood on Wilshire and Veteran at five o'clock. That nobody is above the law protest. There are lots more uh, in Venice at Windward Plaza at five o'clock. There'll be a protest uh, against the firing of Jeff Sessions and the endangerment of Mueller. Uh, in Santa Monica, there's a protest on the California Incline at 5 o'clock that 702 people have, uh, have signed up for. In West Hollywood at 5 o'clock, at WeHo uh, Park, that's the one across from the Pacific Design Center on San Vicente uh, Boulevard, 5 o'clock. Protests against the firing of Jeff Sessions and the endangerment of Robert Mueller in Sherman Oaks at the Sherman Oaks Galleria at 5 o'clock. Uh, my favorite one, there's a city hall rally at 5 o'clock downtown L.A., followed at 6 o'clock by a Silver Lake community garden potluck at the corner of Mitchell Arena and Sunset, 6 to 8 p.m., rapid response potluck following the downtown L.A. demonstration. Please bring a healthy potluck dish uh, to share your own cup utensils and plate, non-flammable lanterns, battery candles, and your neighbors, friends, and ideas for the future. More information about all of these protests at trumpisnotabovethelaw.org. That's no spaces, trumpisnotabovethelaw.org. That's the news about protests in L.A. at 5 o'clock tonight. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests, Ahilan Arulanatham of the ACLU, talked about Jeff Sessions. Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect had our election analysis. 
Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca. We had additional production help today from Mark's Mac Mark Maxwell. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Renee Reynolds, and to Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, this is happening. Jerry, quickly, we'll talk about the Thousand Oaks shootings. Right now, the toll is 13 dead, including the gunman and 18 injured. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.